For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm doing something new. We're going to go for a question and answer session. I thought it'd be a fun way to get some different perspective, I guess. So I'm going to have to slow myself down, not edit this thing, and it's basically like a live podcast. Kind of excited about doing it. I thought it'd be fun, it'd be different, and I took some cues from some people that I really enjoyed listening to, who I'll tell you a little bit more in just a second as this rolls out. So this is the part where I usually start interviewing people, and right now it's just me talking to myself. It's kind of odd, but in any case, I took my inspiration for this from two people. One, Bob McKenzie, the Bobcast. I really enjoy what he does. It's basically him talking into a microphone for an hour and a half, hockey, whatever else comes to mind. Great questions from people, and I'd like to do something similar to that uh, without editing. Another person, Marshall Pruitt of racer.com somebody who i've actually asked for help for before in getting this off the ground when it came to audio and other things like that marshall does an amazing job in the indycar world and i'd like to thank him for this and every week he does something that he refers to as the week in indycar so maybe this turns into the week in goaltending i don't know kind of spitballing here having some fun talking to myself gonna go ahead get right into these questions some are really intriguing thankfully Um, and I'm really excited to do it. So here we go. Might as well. First question I got was from Nick Serp on Twitter. And he asked if there was one AHL city you could play in that you never got to, what city would it be and why? Great question, Nick. You know, I think when you're a veteran in the American hockey league, you start looking around and you start thinking, man, I want to play for the big money teams and the big markets with a lot of history. And it kind of comes down to Hershey and Chicago, and I didn't get either of those. And it's not that there wasn't flirtation before. There was one year where I thought there was actually a good chance I was going to end up in Hershey, uh, and that got submarined (laughs) uh, by management rather than the person, I think, that wanted to hire me there. Um, But that didn't happen. I was really close with the Wolves once, but again, circumstances, affiliations, Strange things happen, never worked out. So um, those are probably the two cities, but there's a lot of good ones in the American League. Next question coming from Courtney Dagger on Twitter. I love this one. Do the color of goalie pads actually matter when it comes to fooling shooters? I always see the debate between black and white pads. Great question. And it's probably something we should ask the shooters. And I have before. I have really strong feelings on this. I don't think it matters. I'll tell you why. White pads, yes. You can't really see where the outline is. It's a little different than black pads. It's very finite. You know where the goalie is. Here's my theory, though. I don't think shooters have time to look up, see space, an open one at that, and say, I'm going to shoot there. 
I think they get the puck on their stick, and 95% of the time that they're shooting, it's muscle memory. They're trying to put the puck wherever they've practiced, wherever they feel the most comfortable. So I don't think that the visual aspect makes a huge difference when it comes to goalie gear. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who disagree with that, uh, that think white is better no matter what. It makes you look bigger. And a lot of people present a theory about the eye seeing yellow that came from Marc-Andre Fleury's pads when he was in Pittsburgh. And some eye doctor had a study that said, your eye picks this up first. So therefore, the shooters must see it, and they can see around those pads and find empty areas and score more goals. Well, that's great uh, in a test situation. The problem is that's not scientifically provable in a goaltending real-world position because people are always moving around. Uh, The puck's going all over the place. Shooters don't have a clean look at the net. It just doesn't have a real-world application, and it's not provable by scientific study. So, you know, I've seen that argument before. Um, You know, he won a Stanley Cup after he went to white. Well, I also saw Corey Crawford go back to black here and won a Stanley Cup. So, long story short... I don't think it matters, and I really like the look of dark pads more than white because the dark pads blend in with pants, and they look good with home and away jerseys. But again, it's just my thoughts. Next question here comes from that Shane Bua, and I'm probably butchering all these names, I would imagine, from Twitter. My apologies to all of you. Um, This one, though, was, who would you consider your biggest mentor in your career, like a coach or fellow goalie that you learned the most from? This is a tough question. Um suitcase like me i've played for just about everybody in the coaching world <laughs> i've had francois lair mitch corn ian clark rick wamsley uh i mean i i could sit here and go down the laundry list all day long it seems like at this point um but i think my biggest mentor truly uh on several different levels would be mitch corn uh, i was drafted by the nashville predators in 2002 i actually met mitch that season uh, when I was playing at St. Lawrence, he came to see me and David Lenovu play, who was at Cornell. And I think we lost 2-1, to one, and Lenovu was a hot prospect, went second round, uh, and I went sixth. But Mitch came to talk to me afterwards, and lo and behold, they drafted me. So I spent the next couple summers working hockey camps for Mitch, traveling around a little bit, getting to know him, uh, going to Predators development camps in the summertime. And ever since then, Mitch has been a really close friend and mentor and someone that I could always lean on. Uh, for advice of any kind, uh, and truly one of my great friends in and out of the game, superhuman being. Uh, and then the other person is definitely uh, my longtime goalie coach, Chris Economo, who I was sent to by Mitch Korn, oddly enough, because Mitch told me that I was a big man that couldn't skate, and Econ was the answer. So uh, I skated with Econ for 18 years, and again, truly one of my best friends in life on the ice everything. And without those two guys, I would have never had my career. Um, And fellow goalie, I wouldn't say mentor, um, but my first professional goalie partner, Mark Magliardiddy with the Las Vegas Wranglers, uh, took me under his wing. And I can't tell you how important it was for me to have him as a partner. We got along so well. We still to this day, uh, even in Las Vegas now, he still lives there. And so we're catching up and having almost weekly dinners, it seems like. And I owe a lot to him too. So uh, again, another good question, and we're just racking them off here. So uh, we'll go right on down the line to Dave Burr, who asks, how important or not, and what was the role of team services managers for you and your family during all of your moves? 
This is a really interesting question, something people probably wouldn't think a lot about. Team services managers, quite truthfully, didn't do a whole lot other than arrange flights or take receipts and reimburse me when it came to family time. Um, Those guys really took care of things in season with call-ups, send-downs, which I had a lot of. Um, But as for my family, they really didn't do much. Um, And that's not a knock on them at all. I just think it was a little bit outside their wheelhouse. Um, I only had one or two teams that uh, at the start of the season ever had somebody kind of reach out and offer to help with things. But um, again, that's it's just kind of the, the way it works, I guess. Um, you know, neither good nor bad for those guys. So the next question here, um, I looked at this one for a long time thinking if I was going to even answer it. And I don't mean that in a bad way because I didn't really want to sit here and just answer questions about other goalies. But the more I looked at it, I thought, you know what, I guess I'm kind of getting known as a goalie lawyer. I might as well go for it. And the question comes from RFM275 on Twitter, and it is, do you think Martin Jones is going to rebound from his awful season? Were the issues with his game technical, physical, or mental? Okay, Rick, there's a lot to unpack with your question here, bud. Uh, <laughs> I know you don't mean any ill will with this whatsoever, but I kind of have a hard time with this one. And I'll tell you why, because... Martin Jones tied for third in the league with wins last year. Sink in for a second. 30-plus wins. Played 20 games in playoffs. Team nearly went to the finals. Was his play as good as previous years? Uh, His numbers don't look like it. His save percentage was down. His goals against was up. His goals saved above average. One of those new metrics that we look at was not very good. Um, Quality starts, not great. But I kind of think back to my goalie partner, my buddy Ben Bishop, who only thing that matters to him is winning. And Martin Jones did a lot of that last year. So what metric are we truly going to look at with this? I don't know. I mean, you kind of have to take all of those into account. And you also have to think that his goalie partner, Aaron Dell's numbers have largely mirrored him for the last couple of years, and his were way down as well. So to me, that shows that there's something else going on besides the goaltending uh, that's causing that dip. That's not to let the goalies off the hook whatsoever. Uh, But I also didn't get to see him play a lot until playoffs last year. So for me to make an educated uh, decision on why his play seemed to suffer last year, I can't really tell you. I can only go for what I saw in playoffs. Um, and from the technical standpoint, the only thing with, with Martin that I see is that I can't really read what he's doing sometimes. Uh, some days he's deep, some days he's way out of his net. It seems like there's maybe a little bit of question of depth, uh, style tendencies and stuff. But I don't know. I can't answer those questions. I'm not in his head. I can't answer the mental side of things. Who knows on that? Uh, but I do know this is a guy who was flat out dominant in the American Hockey League. He was overripe before he got to the NHL, and he's had some really good years there. So if you look at third in the league with wins and 20 games of playoff hockey and nearly going to the Stanley Cup Finals is an awful season, um, that's tough. There's an awful lot of goalies that would love to have 30-plus wins and the contract that would go with it as well. So I hope that's a fair answer. That's the best I can give. And let's keep moving on to another goalie question. And it is simple from RJ Smiley. And he asks Carter Hart, can we trust him? Well, I'm going to flip this one around and I'm going to ask Philly fans if they can trust themselves not to run this kid out of town at the first instance 
of trouble because he's 21, I believe now, maybe not yet. He's got all the skill in the world, and he is the best chance at a franchise goaltender Philadelphia is going to get in a long time, I think, or anybody for that matter. And you're going to have to be patient. You cannot live and die by this kid's performance. Do I think he's going to be a good number one goaltender? Absolutely. Is he going to be elite? That's really the question. He's got all the skill in the world. He's got to put it together for a whole season. Uh, and I hope the fans give him the, the leash to do that because he's a great kid. He works incredibly hard, and he's got the right mentality. If anybody can succeed in Philly, uh, I think Carter Hart's built to do it. I wish him all the best. He was a good teammate, and I'm always rooting for young guys like that to do well. Next question from, hey, Jason D. Power, Coach Power 79 on Twitter. What do you feel is the biggest deficiency in young goaltenders today, and what steps should be implemented for growth education of coaches to help? Well, Jason, as a coach yourself, uh, I'd be kind of interested to hear what you think about this as well. But for me, I think there's a couple things. I think, first off, there's a lack of patience among young goaltenders. Um, they're so ingrained in butterfly in power pushes and downplay and post integrations that a lot of times they bite early and they drop and they hit the deck and they don't stay on their edges. And I'm not sure that's something that's easily teachable. It's something that comes with experience, uh, but it is something that the old guard used to do a lot better. That's probably because we had, you know, a bunch of old dudes telling us that, Hey, stand up in the net. It's an easy game. I mean, I had John Wensink tell me that as my Pee Wee Quebec coach. And let me tell you, John Wensink was an amazing coach for the players. I'm kind of glad I didn't listen to him when it came to goaltending, though. Because if I'd played his way, I would have stood straight up and down five feet outside my crease in 1997. So by willing to trust my own gut, I made it to the NHL. So, uh, John, I love you. You were an amazing coach, amazing guy. Um, but goaltending, not the strength. So another thing, though, Jason, is that I think goaltenders today have lost their ability to use their stick a lot. And I don't mean stick handling, passing the puck. I mean in tight plays, cutting off passes, um, using it to make the shooter do what they want. I mean, you can use the blade of your stick to actively influence a shooter coming at you. You can make them try to go around you. You can cut lanes off. You know, you can make like difficult on them. And a lot of times kids are so used to just having the stick right in front of them nowadays because they're so technically proficient that I don't think they're willing to go outside the box sometimes. So stick, that's a big one for me. Uh, patience. All right, let's transition a bit to Donovan Voigt. Again, if I butcher your name, sorry about that. What city would you say was your favorite one to visit while on the road and why? Well... What league are we talking about? Um, man, the American Hockey League, a favorite city to visit. I really enjoyed St. John's. I just thought that the food scene there and the culture and the live music, and it's just a different place. Like this pseudo Irish English mashup Canadian culture where I can hardly understand the people talking and poutine on the streets. It's just a wild place. Um, but there's a lot of fun cities in that league, too. I mean, the Milwaukee's of the world, Grand Rapids, don't get enough credit for how fun they are. Uh, and then in the National Hockey League, going to somewhere like Montreal was always fun, playing in that building. And also seeing a lot of friends that I had at St. Lawrence. They still live in Montreal. So um, 
you know, my old teammate, Mike Zabrigger, I'd always see when I go there and big Z, uh, it was, it's always great to catch up with him. And last year I got to do a lot of that when I was with Ottawa. So that ranks up there. Uh, my hometown of St. Louis was always fun to visit. Uh, incredibly nerve wracking when I play, but a lot of fun. All right. This one looks like F4 steady money. Well, I think it's fast Eddie money. This one's kind of tough to, to figure out. But Eddie, I like your question, though. How ridiculous is the Canucks rule about white outer rolls? Well, if you don't know, the Vancouver Canucks goalie coach Ian Clark, who is a good friend of mine uh, and somebody who informed me last season that I, in fact, been claimed on waivers. We were having coffee after Vancouver traded for me, and he was explaining my job of going to Utica and trying to get the team into playoffs. And uh, then I was claimed off waivers and never saw him again there. So in any case, I had Ian in Columbus, and I learned a ton from him. Post-integration work, movements. I, we really got along. I loved working with Ian. But I don't agree with him on this one. He thinks the white outer rolls are of utmost importance, that every little thing you can do to help make yourself look bigger matters. Um, I just don't buy into it. It's as simple as that. Uh, I already explained it once beforehand. Um, it would have been interesting to see what my gear would have looked like uh, with Vancouver. I think I had a mock-up of another retro Reactor 5 set that did, in fact, have a white outer roll, so probably a little bit of a sweat off my brow. But, Clarky, I love you, bud. I don't agree with you on this one. And if we ever talked about it in person, I'm sure it would be a three-hour conversation and lots of fun. <laughs> All right, next one, Woodsy22. How do you think Bennington will do this year for the Blues and why? Well, did you ever see those commercials with Nostradamus years ago? I'm not sure how old you are. Uh, I remember those. And they'd make some wild prediction. They'd kick it to Nostradamus, and he'd go, Hey, I'm Nostradamus. And he'd basically foreshadow everything that was going to happen. Well, I can't do that. I'm not Nosty. But I do think Bennington is set to be a good starting goaltender in the NHL. And I'm not just basing that on his work in the NHL last season, winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, and having an incredible run from January on. I actually was backing up for Philly his first start um, in Philadelphia, which was a shutout. Uh, looked pretty good from the bench. I got to watch a lot of hockey, so he looked good there. But um, I base his chances at success more so off of his past. You know, he won a Mem Cup. He was an all-star in the American Hockey League while playing with an organization that wasn't even his. He had good numbers everywhere he went. And I have no idea why he wasn't given a chance previously or why he was passed up by Vili Husso on the depth chart. But when he got his chance, he made good on it, and he showed why he'd always put up numbers everywhere else he'd been. So uh, I think it also shows how many good goalies are out there that just need a break. So I think he'll be fine. I, I don't see any reason to worry with him. And next one, hey, from Hardly Kurt, Kurt Hardly. My friend in IndyCar, who is your odds-on favorite to win the next Aster Cup? That is the championship trophy of IndyCar. Will a Penske driver make it back-to-back -back wins for the captain? Captain being Roger Penske. Will a mayor find it life with a new team? The mayor being James Hinchcliffe, a veteran of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Someone I now count as a friend, oddly enough. Uh, really cool. And will a young gun like Herta or Rosenquist take it? Oh, and then will the Florida Planthers make the playoffs? <laughs> so we got two of my passions in this one. We got racing and hockey. Uh, favorite to win the next Astor Cup IndyCar Championship next year. 
it kind of goes back to the same thing. I really hate picking favorites because I have no idea what the next season will bring. You know, who's going to hit the right package? Who's going to deal with the new um, windscreen slash head protection device that IndyCar is bringing in? I don't know. I just think there's an awful lot of talent. And, Kurt, you're probably going to hate the answer because it seems like I'm waffling, but there's so much talent in IndyCar right now. I mean, I could see Dixon winning again, Newgarden winning again, Pagano, Power, Rossi, Hunter Ray's bit due for a bounce-back year, you know, Herta, Rosenquist. I mean, it's just every weekend there's 12 guys that you could expect to be at the front. And I don't know who to pick, man, honestly. Penske can win every year, no question about it. I mean, will Hinchcliffe go to a new team? That's a great question. I know Honda loves him. He's obviously the focal point of a lot of ads that they do on television. And he's a good driver, too. So there's value there. There's value for Chevy and for Schmidt, Peterson, Arrow, McLaren, Spam, Motorsports, uh, whatever they're going to call themselves. There's value in having a veteran good driver. Um, so I don't know, man. I my, If I had to go with my gut, I'd say Hinch ends up at a Honda team. It's just my gut. But uh, that's just me guessing. I don't know. But I sure hope he has a good season next year. And finally, back to hockey talk, which is why almost everybody I'm sure is listening to this anyway. Will the Florida Panthers make the playoffs? It's tough to make playoffs in hockey. 16 teams. 31 of them in the league. Florida has been waffling uh, in, and wallowing, I guess, in mediocrity for a couple of years now, ever since the infamous Tom Rowe takeover which also shuffled me out of the mix too and that was that was a tough summer I went from the best year of my career in Portland to instantly being at a number four the next year um, while Tom somehow managed to be GM and head coach of the team in any case um, I don't know on the Panthers they have so much skill Barkov is unbelievable uh, Yandel on down the list of guys Huberto I got friends on that team. I hope they do well. They have obviously a good coach and Q coming in with Joel Quenville. And I think Bobrovsky is without question one of the top three goalies in the world. But I just don't know. Can they get over the hump? Um, if I had to bet on whether they would make the playoffs next year, I would bet on them to make it. But I think, in my mind at least, it's going to be a struggle to get there. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully they lead everything because, I, like I say, I still have friends there. But uh, you never know with this stuff, man. Um, who can predict the future, right? But I do think they'll have a good team. they got a lot of good infrastructure in place. Dale Talon knows what he's doing. He's a good man. So we'll see. Next one, Texas Jewels. How do goalies and teams feel about goalies having to wear old team's colors equipment until they can get new gear in a team's color? Uh, I guess this is referencing traded guys like me wearing Senators gear for the Vancouver Canucks, uh, looking like a kaleidoscope out there, and heading to Philly where I got I to stop for a second and say thanks to Derek Settlemeyer there, who is known as Nasty's equipment manager. When I showed up, he pulled like an all-nighter putting pad wrap on my gear to make it black and orange and stick tape on my mask to make it all black, and it looked mean, and at least I looked the part. I mean, it kind of looked like an orange road cone out there. But it looked a hell of a lot better than black, red, and white Ottawa gear. So, nasty. I love you. That was awesome that you pulled that off for me. 
But as far as teams, I mean, I'm, teams want guys in their in proper colors immediately. It's but the problem is he just can't pull it off that quick. I mean, it's not sitting on a shelf. It's got to be made. It's got to be sent to Kay Whitmore and approved, and then sent to the goaltender. So I think it's one of those things. It's just kind of a necessary evil. Um, but goalies, man, we hate it. You want to look the part right away. Like you don't want to look like a Munson out there. And it's something that's bothered me with training camp that some of these kids don't even have matching equipment yet. And that's a joke. Like it's not on the teams. The equipment guys get this stuff so early that they ordered it. And I don't know whether it's the equipment companies or the NHL. I have no idea who it is or why these delays are happening, but it's got to change. Like these kids have got to get their gear and their masks by training camp so they, they look the part out there. All right, let's move along. If you had a chance to save a Game 7 penalty shot to win the Stanley Cup, which team would you choose to be in goal for? Um, from Shy Guy Autumn at Grant Sales. I tell you what, if I had a chance to make a Game 7 penalty shot to win the Stanley Cup... Well, first off, you wouldn't win it. You'd still have to play the rest of the game. Uh, sorry for the technicality there, Grant. Um, it's not the Mighty Ducks where the clock will run off afterwards. But uh, honestly, if I was in the position to win a Stanley Cup, I could care less who I was playing for. And that's kind of the way my career went. Um, I'd just be happy to be there. <laughs> you know, I got close to the American League, but man, I never got close to the NHL. So that's a tough question to answer. And uh, truly, whoever would give me the chance and believe in me to do that, I'd be happy to reward them. Uh, this one's really interesting coming from John Hikes, J.A. Hikes. Uh, what should Columbus Blue Jackets fans be looking at slash four when we watch Elvis Merzlikens as he transitions from Europe, European rinks to NHL? I'm really curious to see. I'm fascinated by this. I honestly can't believe Yarmo is going with two largely unproven guys. I mean, Corpusalo has been in the league. He's a known commodity. He has a really high ceiling from what most people seem to believe about goaltending, but he's never carried the mail. And Elvis Merzlikens has never played over here before. And it's a big difference. And I'm trying to dig in my memory bank of the last guy to truly come from Europe and do it. It might be Jonas Hiller. I mean, I'm sure there's others out there. I guess maybe Jonas Gustafsson, the monster. I don't know. Um, but really the last guy to truly transition straight out of Europe. It's been a long time for somebody to find success. And I'm sure somebody out there will tweet me with somebody that is going to prove me wrong on that. And if so, please do so. I will correct myself. But uh, I don't know what to expect. Uh, it's a different size rink. It's a different game. Uh, I'd be nervous there. Um I really, really thought that Columbus was going to be looking for a veteran guy to fill that role, um, and they didn't go for one. So they obviously believe in these guys, and they're willing to give them the chance. And, you know, if if either of them turns out to be a real gem here, they're going to look really, really good. Um, and they're also going to save a lot of money because they don't have a whole lot of cap hit tied up in their goalies. So we'll see what happens. Uh, let's go to Kelsey Kirsch here. What is your best memory watching the Golden Knights? Hmm. Well, I've been on the broadcast team for a week and a half, so uh, that's hard for me. I, I I don't really know how to go uh, to go with on this one. <laughs> I mean, watching Pacioretty pop three in one night was pretty cool. Um, but I think the best memories are probably yet to come throughout the season, so I'm looking forward to that. Matt Jujakuk? 
I'm going to spell this guy's last name. J-A-C-U-K. Um, kind of like to buy a consonant in the middle of that. But in any case, Matt, sorry for making fun of your name. Uh, I'm an easy target. You can make fun of me right back. Your question, though, without naming names, have you ever confronted a coach or teammate because they didn't, you didn't agree with their decisions or you thought they lacked effort? If so, how'd it turn out? Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Matt. Um, I can't say I ever confronted a teammate that I remember. Um, teammates, if you're listening, please tell me if I'm wrong on this. Um, if I did, I don't think it was ever in a in a manner that would have been, you know, a, in a fighting way, you know, or confrontational. I guess um, I always tried to do things kind of behind the scenes if I could. Um, I did enjoy being in a leadership role, but sometimes it's hard for a goalie to really do that though. I think you have to rely on your teammates to help you out in those situations and coaches. Um, I've had it out with a coach once or twice, but immediately put it to bed afterwards. And I don't think I was the one that did much of the confronting in any way. Um, I do remember standing my ground a couple times though. And it wasn't a matter of me storming into a coach's office and freaking out. I mean, I don't think I would have had my career if I would have done that repeatedly. But I mean, I do remember one instance where a coach thought I was doing a drill differently than I should have. And I freaked and I went right up to it and I was showing where my skate works, skate marks were and everything. And it's pretty early in my career. And looking back on it, I probably should have been nervous about it. Like back then it might've thrown me right off a team, but, uh, I went immediately afterwards to find the coach and make sure things were cool. And they were because I went in and we talked it out and things were fine. Sometimes things get heated in these situations. And as long as you're willing to talk and be an adult about it, that's what matters. This one coming in from Crawdaddy asking, I'm considering going to Norfolk to see a couple of games. What should I expect with the arena? Any food recommendations? Ah, the scope in Norfolk. And it is Norfolk, everybody. Not Norfolk, Norfolk. The Scope's an interesting arena. Um, when I was in Charlotte this year, I thought there were similarities to it. Uh, it's kind of like the Charlotte was kind of like the bastard child of the Bojangles Arena. I mean, it was kind of the bastard child of Utica and Norfolk in some ways. Um, circular building, uh, kind of looks like a nipple actually, which is odd. But uh, in any case, it's a cool place to see a game. I always love playing in Norfolk. Um, fans were really good when I was there in the American Hockey League. I know they've gone through some tough times in the ECHL, and that makes me really sad because I think it's a great market and one with a lot of history, um, championships in the past in the ECHL. Um, but food recommendations? Just walk on over to Granby Street, man. Like, you won't go wrong. There's a whole list of restaurants over there. Some have left since I was gone. Some have come in. And I'd honestly be remiss to give you one or two recommendations because there's so many good ones there. So just walk up and down Granby Street. You'll find something. You'll have a great time at night. Uh, back in the day, I lived behind a place called Scotty Quicks, which was one of the biggest bars there. And you wouldn't believe what you saw pouring out the, the back door of that place at one or two in the morning. I'd be up in my apartment behind it. And it was utter mayhem. You never knew what you'd what you'd see. So it was a lot of fun to <laughs> fun place to play. Had a lot of a lot of good times there. Uh, next question comes from Hannah Brooker. Seems like you're having a crazy amount of fun working with Vegas right now. Did you ever expect the transition from playing pro to media broadcasting to happen so quickly? Also, how much, if any, time have you had at camp to catch up with the few old teammates there? Great question, Hannah, and thank you. 
I am having a blast with Vegas. I kind of, as your question alluded to, I could have never expected to walk into broadcasting right after my career. It's always something that I wanted to do, but I didn't really think was feasible because I didn't have much NHL time. I didn't really have a name. Uh, I do think last year with everything that happened to me going through all the different teams and becoming something of a storyline probably helped me. But then again, too, I mean, I've been doing a podcast. I've been doing media hits. I've had auditions in media uh, the past couple years and chose to keep playing. So I was always trying to lay the groundwork for this. Uh, but no, I never expected it to happen this quickly. And I'm just super, super grateful to the Vegas Golden Knights for the opportunity. And it's been a really fun place to work. I mean, a young, hungry organization, uh, people in the office. I mean, most of them are seven, eight years younger than I am. And they're just so skilled and talented and fun to be around. I'm loving it. And of course, I get to work with Dan Duva, who is our broadcaster in Syracuse. And that's just a blast. So that part's awesome. And yes, I have had time to catch up with old teammates. There's quite a few of them for the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, when I was in Florida, Peary, Smith, Marcia So. Um, and by the way, I mispronounced Marcia So on the air the other night, and I got just shredded for it. Uh, I feel bad about that. But when you're in the heat of the moment and you're just learning how to broadcast, sometimes it comes out Marcia Shusho. So I apologize, folks. I'm doing my best. I promise I'm learning and trying to get better at it. Um, but yeah, played with Mark Stone in Ottawa, Curtis McKenzie in Texas, Paul Stastny's a St. Louis guy like I am. Um, I mean, it just goes down the list. It's truly amazing, uh, and it's the reason why my podcast is called Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Next one goes to Jason Noise, Doc Noise Radio. Hey, Jason. We know each other. Jason's a great guy, everybody. Uh, he asked the biggest tech change in gear you saw during your career. I think there's two things, Jason. Um, the first of which is probably more obvious than the second, and that's the pads themselves. I think when pads started to be worn so that they could rotate up uh, and be 90 degrees to the ice and create that blocking surface and allow us to extend longitudinally while also sealing the five hole with the thigh rise. That changed everything. You know, we used to land basically on the front face of the pad. We didn't have an, even have knee stacks. Um, so that changed everything from a movement point, from a coverage standpoint, everything. Um, but I think the one that people don't realize is how much skates have changed. You know, the move to really stiff custom skates that fit the foot so much better that transfer the energy, I mean, a million times better than the old war boots we used to wear. Uh, now half of us, not half, most, most people don't have cowlings on their skates. I mean, you're a relic if you do at this point. And, and that's, by the way, relic is a term of endearment. Please don't say I'm slagging anybody who's using those things because I'm not. Uh, I use relic about friends and guys that have been around and basically just wily veterans but in any case um you know you can't see a goalie skate in, in stores anymore that has a cowling on it it's just incredible how much that's changed and improved so those are the two i think uh this one comes from courtly eight and you mentioned the relief of not having to go through preseason physical testing this year what's the worst part of that and why the worst part's the dread leading up to it and because you get these benchmarks and i can remember having to hit 11% body fat or lower. And I was always freaked out by like this. Like I'm an ex-fat kid. I weighed 212 pounds in junior. I lost almost 30 pounds before I went to college. And I always had a tough time. Like I'd put on weight right away. And it's not because I ate poorly. I just ate a lot. Like if there's food on the table, I eat it. And 
I'd get freaked out by it. And I remember even in Dallas that year, I came in at like 8.1 and I was shredded. And I was like barely 180 pounds because <laughs> I was so freaked out about it. Um, and they looked at me and were like, go eat something. So that made me feel a lot better. I smashed a couple burgers and some pasta that night and some ice cream. Life was good. Um, but that part of it, you know, just wanting to perform well, you know, and especially for somebody who's been a number three like myself, you're always trying to make your first impression on a new organization. And I remember one time in Arizona, I came in and my numbers were fine. I think I was, you know, 10% body fat, which is well within normal for anybody or for a goalie. And I look up on the board the next day and my body fat was at like 16%. And they had a new strength coach that year and he had mixed up my scores with a kid named McMillan's scores. And there it is, first day of camp. Looks like I'm the most out of shape guy there. And I'm trying to make an impression on a new organization. And I was furious because I knew what happened. I looked at it immediately and said, I think you had to have switched these two. And sure enough, they had. But what what sticks in the general manager's mind? I don't know. Did he get the memo that they screwed this up? Don't know that answer either. So um, that's part of the reason. It really freaks you out. And the funny part is, honestly, it really doesn't matter a whole lot for me. I mean, I look at how much guys would lift and train and they'd get huge in summer and look like a football player in college. It was the wrong way to train. You know, all those big jacked goalies were the guys you were always getting hurt. So I'm I'm pretty happy kind of where I fell in for a happy medium later in my career. Quick question from Mopar NZ. Where are all the masks from all your teams? That's simple. That's over my right shoulder. All my masks are around the roof of my basement right now. Next one from Pappy Hour, MLP. Two parts, sorry. Do you have a version of all your mask designs? Well, yeah, I do have all the masks and my masks did have a lineage to them, which I loved. Uh, it was the same basic design and it originated from Jeff Ward who raced uh, motorcycles, he raced Indy Lights, he raced IndyCar. And a friend of ours from Honda's PR team got me some pictures of that helmet that he had in the mid-90s. And that's what I've based all mine on since. I think this question's great. This comes from a man named Gordon Wiegers, who I probably just mispronounced his name and I'm going to feel bad about. It's either Wiegers or Weigers, and I know this guy really well. I've never asked what, how to pronounce his last name. So anyway, Gordo, thanks for writing in. I appreciate it. The question, describe the perfect burger. I love it. We finally get to food. We're 39 minutes in and we're getting to food. Thanks, Gordo. Folks, when it comes to food, toppings, burgers, you know what really matters? Seasoning. Season your patties. Let them come to room temperature before you cook them. Don't overcook them. Don't make them a hockey puck. Get them medium. Let them be a little pink. You'll be fine. You gonna are you gonna grill them? Sure, that's fine. You gonna pan sear them? Sure. Smash burger, love smash burgers. No matter what style of burger you're doing, get some kosher salt on that thing and some cracked pepper, and be liberal about it. Don't hold back. You're gonna need it. It makes the meat taste good. Beyond that, it's a blank canvas. Depends what you like, but I think a part of it too. You gotta toast your buns, and then you gotta let them rest. Yeah, you gotta let your bones rest. You don't want them to get soggy. You want to have that nice crunchy crisp edge to them. So when you rip into that burger, you got a little contrast. You can also get that through shredded lettuce, affectionately known as shreddice. 
but my favorite burger is one that I put on the menu in Texas. And this is after I won a burger competition in Springfield, Massachusetts, playing for the Thunderbirds. Had an all-beef patty, 80-20 chuck, salt and pepper on that thing. Made a uh, roasted garlic aioli for it. Took some pepper bacon, some spicy arugula for a little peppery hit to it. And then I made this sweet and sour jam that was out of shallots, dates, cider vinegar, honey. I used maple syrup, actually, up there to make it kind of northeastern. So it was like this sweet and sour play. Stuff's banging, man. So we had uh, had a lot of fun making that one. So hopefully I'll make it for you one day. But yeah, season your meat, man. No matter what you're cooking, seasoning's everything. That's the key. Next question here comes from Safes Pucks for Life. GK. Nice handle. What was your thought on the Curtis Curve goalie stick? I had one when I was younger. Never really saw them again. So for those who don't know the Christian Curtis Curve goalie stick was popularized by Andy Moog, I think the only person to use it in the NHL, and the handle of it looked like a gooseneck. It was also the heaviest piece of trash to ever hit the market, and probably the worst stick and worst innovation I've ever put in my own hands. I don't know what this thing was trying to accomplish. It had a curve on the top of the thing. I don't know how anybody could shoot with it, much less carry it, because it weighed about 19 pounds, because the gooseneck handle had to be out of solid wood rather than laminate. Uh, it did cover the ice in the paddle down, though, uh, so you could use your flagpole to kind of direct traffic. I could see, at least in that sense, a little bit of an advantage. Um, no, I thought they were garbage, and apparently most people did, too, because only one person used it in the NHL. So I'm on my soapbox here on that one, though. So if, you, if you're a kid out there or somebody out there that loved a Curtis Curve, hey, whatever, whatever floats your boat, man, but I didn't think it was any good. Okay, like Linus 22. I gotta wonder if that's a, I wonder if that's a Deftones reference or a Charlie Brown reference. I don't know. In any case, what was the best worst ice surface you've played on? What was the War Memorial's ice like in Syracuse? I like the War Memorial. Uh, the ice wasn't always the best. Uh, it did tend to get humid in the spring and fall, and it didn't hold that out too well because it's an older building. But in the winter time, ice was really good because it was cold in there. Um, Best ice is probably at St. Lawrence. Man, it would it'd be so cold up there that I'd have to sharpen my skates like an eighth inch to get any bite on them. But uh, oddly enough, a place that always had a good reputation for ice was Lowell. People love the ice in Lowell. I don't know why, um, but it was really good. Edmonton, really good. Worst ice? That's easy. That's Houston. Houston was like skating through the streets of... Baghdad after the American troops went in like just terrible like you couldn't skate on it was like sand it was hot Houston was awful for ice great city it's a bummer it's missing in the American League man was that ice awful don't miss that one bit so here's another one from Sebastian Estal Lil Pads two-parter oh good I like two-parters do you think Vancouver should have thrown Michael DiPietro into his first game that quickly? And do you think the success of Carter Hart being like nearly the same age had anything to do with it? Hoping the young stud could show a similar performance. No, I think they threw him in because they had to. They literally didn't have another healthy person. I got claimed off waivers. Backman had a torn Achilles. Uh, let's see. Demko was hurt. Markstrom was battling an injury. They literally didn't have a choice. I think that's all it comes down to. They weren't trying to catch lightning in a bottle or anything. Uh, and I feel bad for the kid because that's not how you want to start your career. Um, 
Is it going to be water under the bridge? I'm sure it is. Seems like he's got a great mentality and he's a skilled goaltender. But that sucks, man. Seven goals. Team doesn't help you a bit. Thrown to the wolves right out of junior like that. Ugh. But you know what, man? Played the NHL. You can never take that away from him. And I bet you anything that's not the last time he plays there. So I hope the next time goes a lot better for him. Here's one near near and dear to my heart. What are your feelings on the trapezoid behind the net and limiting goalies playing the puck? Do you think it'll ever be overturned? If I can blow up one rule in the NHL, this is it. I hate the trapezoid. I don't like to use the word hate, but I do. I hate the trapezoid. And I played with it for 14 years. And for me, it was a skill. Like I was a supposedly a big goaltender who could handle the puck in 2002 when I was drafted. I was 6'2", 190, which... Now it's probably undersized. Back then I was big. But I could handle it, and I had the guts to go to the corner and make plays. And I was, I mean, I shoot right-handed when I play out in the summer. I shoot right-handed as a goalie. It was a skill for me. So what was I going to do with it? I get to the big leagues. I had to learn how to work around it. I think that the NHL has actually made really bad goaltenders Good puck handlers. I'm sure. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say bad goaltenders. Really bad puck handling goaltenders. Good and efficient puck handlers, because now they've created a system. You get the puck behind your net. You got two people to disperse it to. Make a simple play. It's out of your zone. You know, it used to be that when you wandered out of your net, you'd have to get creative with it at times. And I know everybody credits Brodeur for being, <clears throat> excuse me, being the guy who caused this to happen. But I think a DiPietro, Marty Turco, even Chris Osgood. Some other guys who were amazing with the puck were just as important for it. So I can't stand it, but at this point, it's been there for 14 years. Is it going to go away? (sighs) I don't see it being a pressing matter, sadly enough. So I wouldn't bank on it, but I hope it goes away. All right, here's another question from Hannah Brooker. Um, Probably would have limited it to one, but I like this question. So... What's it like when you see the younger guys you've played with in the AHL start killing it in the NHL? Uh, For instance, Hints tearing it up in the postseason. Can you see it coming? And who might be the next? Well, I don't know who might be the next. Uh, It's always hard to judge. But Rope Hints, the ace of spades, my daughter Kenlin's favorite, although William Carlson is joining him quickly. My six-year-old seems to have a thing for (laughs) blonde-haired... I guess they're both... Are they Scandinavian? Well, the Swedes are, right? I don't know about the Finns, if they consider themselves, but in any case, those old Vikings, my daughter seems to like them. In any case, it's really cool. You know, you see, especially the guys that play a year or two in the American League and get their chance and make good on it, you know, in some ways as a veteran guy, you're hoping that you you rubbed off on them in some way. Um, And you're also hoping that they remember you quite frankly, <laughs> so that someday when you walk in a building, they'll at least see you and smile and you can share a memory or two. Um, but man, Rope's awesome. I, I thought for sure he'd be an NHL player, and it's really good to see him getting his chance. And I just hope that the Ace of Spades nickname sticks with him because, hey, I coined it one, and I think it works, man. He's got a, he's got an Ace Spades tattooed on his arm. How could it not? So I hope it does. He's a good kid. All right, here's one from Josh Redman. How did your preparation differ from AHL to NHL, or did it differ? Not a bit. No, in terms of the actual games, not a bit. Absolutely the same way. Um, Bigger stage, for sure, at the NHL level. Um, You know, there's just not much you can do about it at that point, but in terms of actually preparing, 
I'd go about it the same way. Try to eat well, try to do all the little things I could to be ready for it. Um, yeah, not too much different. So that is about all I have from the Twitters of the world. So I think we're going to pop on over to the Facebooks. Can you believe it? People still use Facebook. Sometimes it surprises me. But in any case, we're going to go to it. So the first question I received is from Gene Corbett. Hi, Gene. I think I know you. Which season, either amateur or professional, was the most satisfying for you personally? Which organization did you enjoy the most? Which city had the worst culinary environment? <laughs> uh, I'll answer the last one first. Worst culinary environment? Probably Springfield or Lowell. Uh, Springfield, Mass. I'm sorry, everybody. Don't take that personally. Uh, but 40-year-old Red Sauce Italian restaurants, Americanized Italian at that, just aren't my wheelhouse, especially after playing 20 years of hockey and being served chicken and pasta more than I can ever count. So I'm sorry. It's just reality. So don't take it personally. Uh, which organization did I enjoy the most? I played for a lot of good ones. I can honestly say I probably only had bad experiences in two organizations. Um, I guess, no, take it back. We'll say three. Uh, but I played in 15 organizations. So 12 out of 15 treated me pretty well. Uh, that's something to be proud of. Uh, but which season was the most satisfying? It has to be the year I spent in Dallas and in Austin. And reason being was... It was an amazing place to live. We had a wonderful setup. I got to walk my daughter to school. Uh, I'd see him in the stands every game. So from this family standpoint, we were so happy. Everything was great there. People, you, you food, just you name it. Austin's an incredible city. Uh, but the season didn't actually start out that well for me. Uh, I played for a while at the beginning, and, and then I sat on the bench for the better part of a month or so while Landon Bow took over and played great. And that was tough, you know. I'm thinking, man, this might be it for the career. And But then I started to play better, and, and I really got on the same page with my goalie coach, Jim Bedard, and I, and we started to click and have fun, and, and just we were bringing it every day. And Landon Bow and I got along so well, like amazing goalie partner, right? So um, then I go to Dallas, and I finally got to, to win another hockey game in the NHL after a bunch of years and spend some time there. And, and then we went on an absolutely magical Calder Cup run. And to go to Game 7, to leave everything on the line, to know that I played literally the best hockey in my life at the most important time in my career. Um, yeah, amazing. All of it. Fans there, you name it. Organization, coaches, uh, management. I mean, Jim Nill is one of the most amazing humans in the game, much less a manager. Uh, the way they treated us was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that's probably it. But... Yeah, most everybody's been pretty good. So another question from Andrew Hart. From the time you broke into the professional ranks to now, what changes have you seen with goaltending, coaching, and trading? Do you think these changes go far enough, or do you think coaches can do more for their netminders? Hmm, lots. Uh, man, I never had a full-time goalie coach until about my ninth year pro. How about that? So that tells you one thing. Um changes have they gone far enough sometimes i think they've gone too far um man there's some days where you just want to go out and practice and you don't want to go out a half hour early and stay out late like a lot of goalies are doing nowadays i'd like to see coaches back off sometimes and just let the goalie go out and play and have fun for a day that'd be nice 
Um, not to say you don't need to do your video and all your technical work in the right times, but sometimes you just need to go have fun, stop some pucks, laugh with your teammates. Don't take it too seriously. Um, but in terms of the actual technical training, man, it's night and day. Like every team has a specialist as a goalie coach. Most teams have two, some have three, some have a scouting department. So it's, it's certainly changed. The amount of resources being thrown at goaltending are, are more than they've ever been. Um, and that's why the, the position's so optimized at this point. You know, I mean, there's so many good goaltenders out there that it's really hard to differentiate who can really bring it and who can't. And it's also why I, we kind of look like clones of each other, again, because it's been optimized so much. So here's an interesting question from Stephen Cloutier, I believe. Um, it's long, uh, but I'll give you kind of the gist of it. Um, basically asked me why I catch with my right hand and if I started out the normal way first of catching with my left. It's this simple, man. I picked up a stick and I caught the puck with my right and that's what felt right. And I don't have a conscious memory of thinking I'm doing it for a reason. It's just the way I did it. I catch a baseball with my left hand. I catch a puck with my right. I did see Greg Millen in net for the St. Louis Blues as a kid in the mid-80s and he was my original goalie hero. Also a guest of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. He's an alum. Uh, thanks, Greg, with a fantastic interview early in the series. So that probably had something to do with it, but I think it was more so that I shot right-handed and I wanted to shoot right-handed as a goalie, and it made sense to me. I mean, think about it. You can shoot a puck with... You can catch a puck with either hand. Catch a baseball with either hand. Can you throw with either hand? That's not the easiest. Can you shoot the puck either way? I can't shoot left-handed. I can't imagine trying to learn to do that. So I think it gave me an advantage, actually, because I was able to handle the puck really well at a young age. I mean, I could shoot it up and over everybody out of the zone uh, probably when I was 14. So if I'm bragging, I'm not really sorry. It's probably what got me here. <laughs> it's just reality. Um, so, yeah, that's probably why. Here's one from Kim Riappel. Ripple? I'm sorry. I can't pronounce your name right. Which city had the most loyal and knowledgeable fans? Which city had the best beer? Well, to your second question, I will uh, take a quick sip now of... Wine. I'm actually much more of a wine guy than a beer guy. Uh, I'm actually having a glass of death metal red that happens to have a unicorn on the label, oddly enough. It's a 2015. Great vintage. I don't know. That's probably wrong. But, uh, you know, I like a beer every now and then. Post-game, in the right scenario, if it's really hot out, if I'm grilling, I'm fine with it. Uh, definitely more wine guy, but probably Portland, Maine had the best beer scene. I'm not a big craft beer guy at all. In all honesty, you give me a Bush or a Budweiser, I'm a happy guy. I'm a St. Louisan. But uh, I did like Austin. I like Scheinerbach an awful lot. So that's kind of in my wheelhouse. And um, St. Louis has a good place too, though. Center Ice Brewery. Those guys are doing good things. Hockey, uh, hockey brewery downtown. So I'd probably say, though, Portland won, Austin too. But again, it's not really my scene. Uh, as far as most loyal, knowledgeable fans, oh, man, I better go to my hockey database. Let me pull it up here real quick because all those places I played. <laughs> I mean... Most knowledgeable fans, probably, 
Gonna have to guess, oddly enough, would be Ottawa, because it was the only time I played in a Canadian market. Uh, and there is truth to Canadians being more knowledgeable about hockey in some instances. Um, you know, for instance, like Dallas was an incredibly loyal fan base, loud as could be. I'm not sure that the knowledge of hockey was at the same level, but man, they were loyal to a fault. And I loved playing there. Loved Dallas, loved Columbus. Um, again, you know, these markets that maybe had not necessarily had a team for a long time seemed to be uh, the markets that treated their players the best in some instances. So that's a really hard question. It really, really is. Uh, but I, I felt like I was treated really well in a lot of places, Portland, Syracuse, even in that brief time I was there. Um, a lot of good places. We're at the 56-minute mark, by the way. That's odd that I just looked down. That was the number I preferred to wear. It was my dad's racing number for anybody interested in that. So next question from Raymond Vier. Do you see yourself as a goalie coach or other type of coach in professional hockey? With your knowledge and play experience, you have a lot to offer. Well, thanks, Raymond. I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, right place, right time. I probably wouldn't rule anything out in life. I know I'd be a good goalie coach, I believe at least. Um, again, trying not to sound too egotistical there. Uh, I did run goalie camps for the better part of a lot of years, and I do know the inner workings of things, and I had to coach myself for so much of it. But it just doesn't have that appeal to me. Uh, to me, it's just like playing. You live and die by your players, by the games. You get hired, fired, move around. I'm truly happy to be in broadcasting right now. I always thought this would be a ton of fun. It'd be a great way to stay in the game, and right now it's proven to be true. So it's kind of where I lie on that. couple left here, Scott Hesalius. Again, somebody hoping to see me as a goalie coach. Again, I'm flattered. I appreciate that. Uh, but no, I really don't have interest in that. Uh, coaching kids in the offseason like I did in St. Louis. I did it for a bunch of years here. And the reason being was first, when I was playing in the ECHL, I needed money. I was making 500, 450 bucks a week. <laughs> so my summer camps paid for an awful lot of things. Um, but as I got older, it, it became more of a passion play and a chance for me to give back to kids in St. Louis. And, you know, maybe someday. Um, I don't know what the future is going to hold for me, quite frankly, where I'll be living amongst other things. So it's hard for me to plan that far out. But, um, yeah, coaching kids, if it's something where I can give back and it fits schedule and all that, I'd like to do it. But professionally as a job don't see it again unless it's the right scenario so a uh, couple left here and this is the hardest type of question from Stephen Hastings who were some of your favorite players to play with wow I mean I've played with thousands I mean that's been the greatest part of my career and the biggest blessing to it is meeting all these people and sharing locker rooms with them sharing stories sharing buses it's really amazing stuff, and it's so hard to pick certain people because, you know, favorite players to play with. Are we talking on the ice? I mean, geez, I certainly liked playing with Roberto Longo and Yarmir Yager and sharing practice nets with Marty Brodeur and Olaf, you know, Olaf Colsey being on the ice with. And But favorite players to play with and be friends with, I mean, there's just so many people. And, again, that's been the best part of my career. But if I had to whittle it down to one person, I mean, Mark Magliardidi, who I mentioned earlier, my goalie partner in Vegas, he was in my wedding party. So maybe if I had to pick one guy, he'd be him. But there's just so many good dudes out there that 
I'd drop anything to go have a have a dinner with again right now. This one from Crystal Sheep. Or Shippe? Sheepe. Sheepe. Crystal, I'm butchering your name. I'm sorry. What's the hardest part of being a goalie? And who's the hardest team you ever played against? Well, the hardest part of being a goalie, aside from trying to get in front of the puck, which is inherently not easy, is the mental side of the thing. It's not easy on you. And the anxiety builds over the years, for someone like me at least. I don't know. Maybe for guys that have played 15 years in the NHL, they don't feel it anymore. I doubt that. Uh, but for me, I felt like I was fighting for my life every season. And I don't mean life. Like, I, I get it. There's people who do things that have way more gravity to what they do in life than playing goalie and playing a game. But I felt like every season I was fighting for my career uh, because I wasn't somebody's prospect. And if I wasn't in the top five or top 10 in statistics, I may not get a contract, you know? And I love hockey. It's what I wanted to do. I'm not married to hockey. I could do other things if I had to, but I wanted to play. I wanted to play as long as I could too. And at least as long until I decided time was up, like I did this year. Um, but yeah, I think that mental side of it, always trying to be on it, always trying to stay up with the Joneses and ahead of the curve, it's hard. But, you know, when you make a long run out of it, it's really rewarding. And hardest team I ever played against? Yeesh. I don't know, man. Like, I played on... I <laughs> When I was in Tampa... We allowed nine goals against the Carolina Hurricanes. I went in for three. I got the hook after one. Rick Tockett yanked me out of there. Kari Rabo went in and allowed six in the second. I went back in for the third. We were losing nine to one coming out. And I remember looking up in the stands, and I had some friends there that night from my hometown of St. Louis. And I look up, and this one guy we call we call him Bert. It's not his real name, but call him Bert and Bert looks at me and I just happened to glance with eyes with him because I, I kind of knew where the family section was and he's holding like a 75 ounce beer it looked like I mean it was probably only like 30 but I don't know it was the biggest one they had for sure and he just looked at me and he cheers me with it and he had this look on his face like Jesus good luck buddy go get him and <laughs> from that point forward my mission was we got to keep this thing under double digits and we did we ended up losing nine to three so, whereas Carolina back then in 09, the best team I ever played against? No. They were a playoff team, though. Um, but that game was tough. So, that was one of them for sure. Um, playing the Capitals that year, you know, Ovechkin did the hot stick on me. That was a pretty good hockey team. Penguins were amazing that year, too. Uh, that was my first start. And it was my welcome to the NHL moment. I remember the first save I had was Crosby on a two-on-one. Uh, so, yeah, we lost that game, though. I won't uh, ride my high, my high horse too much longer about it, but it's pretty cool to go up against those guys right off the bat, the true superstars of the game. And this year with Philly, uh, even though the one start I had against Washington wasn't a win and allowed four goals, and in Ottawa too, I can at least say I had Ovi's number. So for him, embarrassing me pretty good with the hot stick, I did at least kind of get him back these last two games when I made some saves. So that always felt good. So... I uh, think that's about all we have. Amazingly enough, we've gone for over an hour, and I appreciate it. So maybe we can do this more often. I really enjoyed the question and answer format, kind of Bobcast type slash the week in IndyCar. Uh, so for the two guys I looked up to, Bob McKenzie, Marshall Pruitt, 
thank you very much. And once again, maybe it becomes a regular thing. So I hope everybody enjoys it. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees. Please make sure that you like. Please make sure that you like. Leave a rating. Subscribe. Leave a rating. Subscribe. iTunes. Anywhere that you get your podcast. Anywhere that you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.